Welcome to the Think Education podcast. My name is Chris Hill, joined today by a colleague of mine, Professor Perry Hobson. And an actual fact, this is um, the this is the first of two podcasts, but um, we're recording on the same day. But uh, Perry will be our first return speaker, which is which is I think pretty cool. Um, for a formal introduction, Perry is the director of the BUAS Academy for Tourism at Breeder University of Applied Sciences, previously professor of tourism at Sunway University in Malaysia. Perry's educational experience spans uh, three countries with a bachelor's degree from Oxford Brookes University in the UK, a master's from the University of Massachusetts in the USA, and a PhD at Southern Cross University in Australia. Perry has been the editor-in-chief of the A-ranked SSCI indexed Journal of Vacation Marketing for over two decades and is a board member of the International Center of Excellence in Hospitality and Tourism Education Accreditation Body. Uh, Perry is the past president of the APAC... Man, I got it wrong again. I even practiced. APACRI? APACRI? APACRI. Apologies to this this organization. um, (laughs) This is just embarrassing now. Um, do you want to say it out loud, just for uh, a pakri, a pakri? Yes, a pakri. A pakri. Okay. So that that's the seventeen interpretations um, for for uh, for everybody involved. Uh, a lifetime fellow of the Council of Australasian Universities for Tourism and Hospitality Education in Australia, and an honorary fellow of the Council for Hospitality Management Education in the UK. You are. In the Netherlands at the moment, um, on your way yeah, to, right. to multiple places. I mean, your 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 career is very much an international one. I mean, we I already said that your education was was, albeit English speaking um, countries, but international yeah. uh, in scope. You've worked and travelled many, many places, and obviously, with your focus on tourism, you've got a clear level of expertise in terms of. You know how we brand things, how we market things, how we attract people, how we provide levels of service, and I mean that clearly has related to a lot of your work in in student engagement, student activity. And what we wanted to talk to you today about was very, very relevant contemporary issue: international students, who they are, what they are, why they are, maybe, um, and uh, and and how they're being understood um, how they're being used because they are obviously being used for political um, uh, gains or discourse right um, and I mean you've written a, a recent piece for for the Pi news on uh, um, sort of the world in which you're operating in in the Netherlands but you know clearly you, you know expertise much broader than that to, to speak about this so what's <laughs> what's going on I mean really like what what, what is happening <laughs> Well, look, I think if anything, international education has become a, a little bit of a victim of our own success at one level with, um, you know, students being able to study, get educated around the world. But this has now got conflated with this whole issue of migration and people moving between different countries. And, you know, obviously, um, in fact, you're on, on both of our backgrounds, Chris, growing up in the UK, with the whole Brexit discussion about, oh, too many people are moving here, we've got to cap these numbers. And the challenge then is where international students get put into the numbers. And I think in in certain countries, uh, that's become part of the challenge. Now, as a tourism uh, professional, as my academic areas you've spoken about, 
Um, the definition of being a tourist under the UNWTO is someone um, who travels a certain distance and stays overnight, but less than a year. Now, this is when it starts to get interesting, because now the question is, is that most international students, as uh, I would suggest, are therefore very rarely staying in their, their destination country for more than a year. So certainly that does happen, but most people do return or travel off somewhere else as well during that time. Um, but uh, what's happened in various countries, even for one-year master's degrees in the UK, they're being put into the migration figures. So there become some interesting discussions there about how we're using the statistics, which countries are putting them into what categories. And again, this was where you get into various political dimensions uh, as well. Um, and therefore, I think that can shape the conversation. The Netherlands, you know, our situation here is being um, compounded a little bit by being a victim of our own success in terms of, again, switching uh, a country which, where, where English has become uh, a very strong second language. A lot of the universities in the research universities, of which is 12 to 13 of them, you know, have switched a lot of their courses to English. I'm in the University of Applied, sector, Applied Sciences sector, uh, and so much fewer student, international students are in that sector. In our case, it's about 20%. But we're an institution that has shifted a lot to English for obvious reasons, because we're dealing with, you know, we have an academy of tourism, we have an academy of hotel management, we have an academy of leisure and events. Uh, um, you know, and we have Academy of Games uh, and then logistics and uh, uh, built environments. So the majority of our students here uh, are already in fields which are very internationally focused. And for a small country, uh, that's perhaps not been so surprising. And But as you said, around the world, this has become quite a pressing issue, despite other countries such as Australia, Canada, who seem very, very keen uh, to keep on recruiting international students uh, very rapidly. But the tensions are there, and it's quite amazing now watching some of these conversations come out as it gets conflated with domestic politics, housing policy, etc. And uh, th these seem to be the, the challenges that uh, education has uh, found itself right in the thick of it. Yeah, I mean, I was I was at a, a conference in Tashkent last week, and um, there was a representative from UUKI, uh, talking, uh, you know, particularly about the issue of, you know, and indeed how UUKI has been, you know, very vocal and very, uh, you know, passionately arguing against the UK government's approach to, to how, you know, international students are being recorded or, or, or listed, right? Because it's, yep. it, 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 well, it's, you understand why, because it's a very um, efficient tool with which to, you know, do something else. Um, but as you say, I mean, even if the definition doesn't allow for that, um, it does mean that they become viewed in a very, very different way. And that, that has a massive impact, not just, I mean, for the students themselves, clearly, you know, for their, their lived experience and, and their sense of security and welcoming, etc. But also the impact that the international students obviously have on universities and indeed on the wider community. Um, and it's funny because I was thinking back to, you know, but you and I both worked in Malaysia, indeed, at the same time. And at least while we were there, I mean, that's sort of close to a decade ago, I guess. But, you know, the international student recruitment market was not designed or aimed at least at retaining them post-graduation, right? It, it was a focus was on yeah. bringing international students in for a, a very successful T&E market. You know, it has a, a, a big impact to the economy. You know, that, that's a clear, clear mark and clear indicator. Yep. 
not necessarily impossible, but very, very tricky for students to work during their degrees and, and visas being what they were post-degree, that was another matter. So they, they effectively went, they either went home or they went, you know, to a third country. Um, but they weren't, they weren't demonized in the sense they were, you know, they were international students there for study. And that was that, right? And because it, it also had a, a really big impact on Malaysia's T&E numbers, which obviously was a, you know, a big a big indicator for the for the country. Oh, oh, absolutely! And you know, Malaysia was making um, it positioned itself very successfully as the T and E, you know, hub um, in Southeast Asia, uh, which you you weren't seeing at that time. Indonesia, as you know, since that time has allowed some um, uh, Australian and UK universities in, and uh, Vietnam sort of stuck its toe in the water a little bit. Thailand's really still not quite sure. So the pattern across uh, Southeast Asia, very, very different. And I think Malaysia was very successful. But as you pointed out, there was no real intention that this would provide additional um, workforce, uh, you know, to fill gaps in that workforce. Um, because the concern of the Malaysian government was really to make sure that Malaysia had, had those had jobs. Yeah. Whereas here in the Netherlands, this has been a different conversation. And that's been quite interesting as you switch countries to find yourself in a very different conversation. And, and here the concern has been, well, we've been hosting all these international students and one of the complaints is that not enough of them stay. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, so you, you suddenly find yourself in a different conversation. Now, part of that you could understand is because particularly for the EU students, the Dutch government is filling up the amount that is that they're paying. And so... You've got transfer within Europe, which most people tick the box and say that's fantastic. After all, that's why they put a lot of money into Erasmus to actually promote student mobility. And uh, we've just, where where in, in, in my department here, we've just created a new master's degree with the University of Girona in Spain and the University of Rijeka in Croatia, so that students will spend their master's degree in three different locations. Mm. So at that level, people give you a round of applause and say, that's fantastic, great, tick the box, love it. Um, but then when you're bringing students in to do the degree here, suddenly you're given, oh, no, that's not what we want. And as I said, this has been partly shaped by, you know, a housing policy. It's got conflated and the Dutch government that uh, fell last week, this was because the legislation was all wrapped up in the question of uh, how to deal with uh, asylum seekers and, and immigrants in, in, in that context. So again, education finds itself, uh, international education finds itself with getting conflated with different agendas, which sometimes have absolutely nothing to do with international education. Sometimes they do, of course. And I think this is the interesting conversation that uh, each country needs to have. And as you pointed out, sometimes decisions get made and in quite, you know, when you compare data between different countries about who's counting international students as what. Mm. And that, again, becomes another interesting, uh, I think, discussion, which then could be used as a pro for education, but an anti against it. So I think that's where things get, yeah, yeah, get quite interesting. So if you're an exchange student and I come in on a visa, that could be a tick, yay. You know, most countries are very excited. I just come back from Thailand and, you know, they are desperately counting to make sure they bring in more tourists. Fantastic. So come for a week, we'll tick the box. Stay for six months, you get an extension visa. Fantastic. 
Netherlands, tick the box. Yes, we want. Oh no, you want to be a oh you want to be an international student. Oh no, sorry, we're not so keen on that now. So you know, it's it's very interesting in in different contexts about how welcome or feared uh, international students can suddenly become. Do you see that there's a is there a distinction here? If we're talking about undergraduate international students if we're talking about you know international students in the research sort of capacity is does it have a, a, a difference in how it's viewed in your context or is it sort of equally there's no distinction within um i at the moment i've not picked up on a on a, a, a different distinction i think politically it's just been an us and it's it's very much a black and white it's an us and them so the reality is, in, 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 in my context, 90% of our international students actually come from within the EU. So within some of the other research universities, they've gone more heavily after uh, countries outside the European Union. So um, that seems to be a little bit... So I don't think there's a distinction between undergraduate and postgraduate in, in the context that I'm seeing. And again, um, you know, obviously I don't pick up on all the nuances, so sure, let me be sure. quite clear about that. But what I do do see seem to see a bit of a difference is between whether they are EU students or non-EU students. That seems to be part of the discussion as well. But at the end of the day, they doesn't matter where you come from, you've got to live somewhere. And then the other discussion that's come up is how many of them stay. And, and the concern that's been put out is that uh, not enough of those international students are staying. Which is interesting because you see other countries where they're saying, oh, there's too many of them staying. <laughs> so again, the conversation in each context becomes quite different about what a country thinks is good or bad. Yeah. So uh, as you said, in Malaysia, they didn't want them necessarily to stay at all. Um, in other countries, the, the Dutch are saying, oh, it's a shame not more of them are staying and we, we should be making sure they learn more Dutch so they do stay. Yeah. Uh, and that's to deal with labour shortages the country is, uh, is facing. Which is a similar, so similar as, as where I work here in, in Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. I mean, the, there's a strong push. We have, a, you know, a, a, I mean, 80, 90 or so percent of our population is what would, I guess, broadly be termed expat. I mean, and obviously within that yeah. community, that's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a massively diverse expat community. Um, you know, we have a, a very, very thriving international schooling system. Um, and we're sort of, yep. depending on how you count it, ranked number one, number two, whatever it may be, for, my, for the most you know, international branch campuses or foreign providers uh, in, in the country. Um, uh, and, you know, KHDA, our, our regulatory body here in Dubai, you know, they're, they're often looking for ways in which you can encourage the students to remain in Dubai to study university. So, you know, we have a lot of um, international providers who obviously have home campuses in Australia or France or the UK or yep, the United yep. States. And, you know, the, 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 the idea is, you know, you, you come to Dubai or you're, you're born in Dubai, you grow up here, please stay here to go to a foreign university and then please stay here and work, right? The, it's, the same, it's the same thing about attracting, I guess, the understanding of the knowledge economy, the understanding of the capacity of individuals, the understanding of the diversity and, and sort of bringing those, bringing those together. Um, I mean, as you say, it's, it's, it's difficult to compare across countries perfectly because, you know, as you say, the motivations and, and needs are just, you know, massively, massively different. But, yeah. Um, so how do you view, you know, as you, as you said, or, you know, you, you and I both have UK experience, um, even though haven't, neither of us have, have been resident or worked in the UK for, for a while. So this... 
this may come across a little bit as you know throwing stones from afar but uh, um, given that within international education a lot of what happens in the UK impacts you know many of us elsewhere you know just because of you know the campus design or, or movement so what's your views on on what's happening in the in the UK um, in relation to to international student mobility I mean we already know that there's very little outward mobility um, that's sort of a fairly traditional yeah. approach and you mentioned the you know the need well need is maybe the wrong word the aim post brexit to control uh, movement in a different way than actually is happening um, yeah I was just I was just interested in your reflections well I guess you know I, I, I was an exchange student out of the UK back in 1984 and at the time uh, before you know as it became later Oxford Pollock Oxford Brooks, it was Oxford Polytechnic at the time, we had no international office. And so to make my exchange work, I literally had to find the partner university in the US by writing that old fashioned thing called a letter wow. uh, and putting a stamp on it, um, you know, so way back when. And, um, you know, I've been constantly saddened by, as you pointed out there, the very low levels of student mobility. I think before COVID, the UK was at about six and a half percent. You know, Bologna was was had a target of about 20%. I think some of the German universities have been clocking over 40%. Uh, and the UK had promised, uh, before the whole Brexit thing kicked in, to, to double it to 13.5%. And I think it's been very sad from the outbound mobility point of view how little of that has happened. And even when I was in Malaysia at Sunway University, uh, and before that, Taylor's University, you know, so you made the point about T&E, um, when I arrived there, Taylor's University had a T&E agreement with the University of the West of England. We didn't have a student mobility agreement. <laughs> so for British students to come to Malaysia, it was all about sucking international students into the UK, which is such a sad thing. And then I'm afraid, you know, you ask for reflections to watch the UK go through Brexit and then to talk about global Britain. Yet no one's actually gone to the rest of the world. If you look at student numbers, yeah. you've really got to wonder how the hell that's ever going to happen. Yeah. So I have to be a bit cynical and reflecting on that. Um, and, you know, uh, to me, it has been the sort of travesty of UK universities has been with that. And I had uh, just before last Christmas, a UK university knocking on my door here in the Netherlands. I, I don't think they were expecting to find a Brit sitting on the other side of the desk from them. But when I asked basically why were they there, they said, look, we've lost all our Erasmus friends. No one wants to talk to us anymore. And so we're having to do a complete reset. Um, and again, I was in a university in London uh, earlier this year uh, talking with them and they said, look, we've lost all our international um, uh, students from the European Union, gone. So our, our goal is to focus on India and Nigeria. So. You know, the, for the UK students, this has really cut down, I think, their range of options. And Br British options, if you looked at the numbers of where they were going, it was largely to English-speaking countries such as, you know, US, Canada, Australia, etc., um, where they were was, was sort of uh, often hoping the most interest to go to. And this is really going to hurt the UK in terms of its long-term, um, I think, objective, the, the opportunity for youth, where to go, and the way that the uh, Turing scheme, as it's been called, has been put in. And uh, again, I have to, again, shake my head at, at why it was called the Turing scheme. Uh, I'm not aware that Alan Turing was ever an exchange student. I'm not aware that he actually spent much time outside of the UK. 
I think we perhaps could have come up with someone better. Alan Turing's got many fine qualities as a mathematician and of identifying his AI. There could have been many other things he could have, could have been known for. But I don't think international mobility was perhaps the most key thing. In fact, probably the best thing that he's known for is the fact that he broke the Enigma code. So if you actually want to be a little bit insulting to the Germans, that's probably the fastest way of doing it. And that's probably more my concern. And, um, you know, I think that was probably, a, again, a, a huge missed opportunity, the way this has been introduced. So for me, I think it's, it's, it's really sad. And I've done all I can over the last two, three decades, where every university I've been involved in to try and encourage partner universities in the UK to, to help get more British students out of the UK to see other parts of the world. But basically, it's been swimming against the tide if you look at sort of what's happening. Whereas Australia, I think, was hugely successful with uh, before COVID. It re in, in, uh, brought in what's called the new Colombo plan. The old Colombo plan was when uh, students from within the Commonwealth had come to Australia for, uh, for study, because until that point, that hadn't happened. That was back in the 1950s and 60s. The new Colombo plan was to get Australian students out of Australia into Asia. And I was very pleased and to be able to host a lot of Australian students uh, at both Taylor's, uh, Taylor's University, where the Australian government funded a lot of that. And so that was very focused in the Asia-Pacific region in particular, and was hugely successful, particularly for short-term mobility. So as I look at the UK again, I have to sort of, uh, as you said, reflect on it, shake my head and think, gee, what a lot of missed opportunities and what a lot of challenges uh, the UK universities are facing. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it's in my own experience, it's I've been having these conversations for at least over the last two decades, you know, about, um, well, no, you know, typically English students don't travel or British students don't travel abroad. And you think, OK, yeah, well, we should really do more to encourage that. Yeah, yeah, we should do more to encourage that. And, you know, and it's still, you know, obviously... <laughs> That conversation's not going anywhere, is it? It's just, it's, uh, and I mean, okay, and, and Britain's not unique in this, right? You know, Britain's not the only country in the world from which students don't travel abroad, right? It's just, it's one a lot spoken about within international education, and so it, it gets a lot of, uh, you know, uh, conversation about this. But um, it does seem very, very strange. You almost, you're, you're trying to. I was going to say burning the candle at both ends, but I think it's actually cutting off both feet. Like it's you're cutting off something at both yeah. ends of, of, you know, not coming in and not going out. And you think, well, as you say, if it's going to be global, global is about connection. Global is about mobility. Global is about, you know, information sharing. It's about people sharing, right? It's about, it's about engagement leading to something. Um, and uh, Yeah, so I mean, the irony for me is, you know, that the UK's done such a great job with its T&E. Uh, has managed to take British education very successfully, you know, all around the world to be a highly sought after education brand. But, you know, the, the, the sad thing for me is that part of that underpins that, which would also be to do something that's to the advantage of young British people, uh, has been totally missed, overlooked, mm. and dare I say ignored. And, um, you know, whereas uh, German universities would find it very strange to think you could monetize their education. Uh, for example, that's really not something that's a hallmark uh, of where they see it. Uh, and, and certainly that would be the case in, in many European countries. The UK took, you know, very successfully 
uh, its education product and has done a great job with it. Let's, let's, let's be clear about that. However, what I think is really, really, really sad has been the lack of reinvestment of those profits from that T&E, which has been done very successfully, and from all the international students that study in the UK, to give more British students that opportunity to discover the world, not just from, um, dare I say, stag parties in, the, in, in, in Amsterdam or um, perhaps in uh, uh, Tallinn and so forth. You know, we've just, wanted to, we've just sort of said, well, that's just not something we do. And once you get that mindset, and as you said, it's been said again and again, that the plan before Brexit was to double it from 6.5% to 13%. I, as I recall, I think it was over half, 90-something-odd UK universities signed up to that agreement. And you've sort of got to wonder where has all that, that gone. I suspect it's all managed to get quite lost in the midst of time. But those were the agreements that were made. So, you know, we're failing, and I think this is the that the UK government's got to work up to is to say, well, we're failing our young. If we've, we've made a major political decision, you've now got to do something about that and to live up to the promise that was made there. And if you don't, as you said, connect with the rest of the world and engage with it, it's going to be very hard to be able to economically reap the benefits if you don't know how you'll be able to sell your products and services in other parts of the world if you don't even know where those parts of the world are let alone understand them, let alone speak their language. <laughs> yeah, uh, unless you, of course, just assume they'll all speak English. And, and there you go, that'll be... Uh, well... And to be honest, well, I think most of the world very, yeah. Yeah, does speak English in addition to the three yeah. other languages that they've learnt in school. Yes, so... Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's right. And, and, and that really is where the UK and, of course, Australia and, and the US and Canada have really lucked out, let, let's, let's be honest. So, you know, we've got a big luck out clause there. But if you want to really uh, make, take advantage of that situation, which is a huge advantage that uh, the way the, the, the deck of cards has been dealt, if I can put it that way, compared to, say, somewhere like Norway, how many other people speak Norwegian or Dutch, for that matter, outside of uh, the, the country, you know, that's a huge advantage, which is why those countries have, you know, English has become the de facto global second language. Uh, around which to use that. So, but that doesn't excuse you from then saying, "Oh well, they'll speak English. That's okay." Language is only one part of this whole story. Yeah, yeah. So, where just to you know bring this to it's not a conclusion, but sort of some form of of something. Where where do you think we're where do you think we're headed with with international student mobility? Do you think it's going to become just increasingly um, regional? Um, you know, as as uh, countries, you know, further develop education sectors and we see sort of more, you know, inter-regional mobility as opposed to reliance on, you know, the however we want to call it, north-south, whatever, global-south, global-north, whatever the, the, the term is. Um, how, how do you think it's, uh, it's going to, to move? Oh, look, that's a, that's, a, that's a really good question, Chris, and I think um, there's going to be a number of factors at work here. Um, I think we missed a huge opportunity to capitalise on the period during COVID, where a lot of international connections had to stop from physical mobility, but we were doing an awful lot online. Mm. And um, for me, the sad thing, I think, I arrived in the Netherlands just as the lockdown was, uh, was ending. And I'd spent a lot of time in Malaysia, as you did in Dubai, sitting in our spare bedrooms, 
but I managed to have a phenomenal range of connections and connectivity and kept up and I think probably saw you more during COVID than I did after yeah. COVID. Yeah, yeah. Now, it was online. And as I could say the same story about a number of my other uh, friends. I ran a series called 30-Minute Talks, which I did every week. In fact, I had a lady just come up to me last week in Thailand who's um, she's based in Singapore, and she says... Um, you don't know me, but I know you. And I was like, well, really, how the hell, you know? Mm. And she said, I watch you every week. And I was like, what the heck? And uh, we did this series for 40, 42 weeks in the first year of COVID to reach out to other, to, to tourism and hospitality students across the Asia-Pacific region. And, you know, that was a phenomenal series. We brought in people from around the world with different opinions, views, etc. the whole thing. And all that work did. I did online just came to a crashing halt because so many universities and my own institution is one here wanted to get everyone back face to face. Yeah, yeah. And I think we learned a lot more that we could do with internationalizing our curriculum without having to move people. There are, of course, sustainability concerns with moving people around and flying everybody, and you know, it's just adding to our carbon problems. And also doing things online. Uh, when I was at, um, at Sunway University, we did a virtual visit to Lancaster. And again, we, you know, I was able to bring people online that, because these were the top students who got a chance on scholarship. So in the past, when they went to the UK, they got to see the campus, they never met the chancellor. Mm. But because we could do it online, I was able to get the chancellor involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who's a former British MP and, and health minister. And so we actually were able to access people and, 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 and connections, you know, online that we were never able to physically do. And I think that's the sad thing for me has been as we've come out of COVID that we didn't um, maintain a lot of the things that we'd learned. Now, I know a lot of it was emergency online, as they said. A lot of it was not particularly well done. But I think it did bring a lot more... Um, connectivity if you used it correctly and I felt I I gained an awful lot through that period and I look back very fondly during that period and as I'm looking ahead and you're asking the future of this you know can we be afford to be flying all these you know in this case if we wanted all those students to be um, uh, traveling you know is that a sustainable thing to do is it a financially viable thing to do Uh, etc does it actually give long Longevity, a lot of the mobility we're seeing is short-term, couple of weeks, etc. I think engaging with other people from around the world online is something our students are going to be much more uh, comfortable with. They they spend their life online with TikTok and <laughs> everything else. They are able to, as as I think, virtual reality will make our classrooms very different from where we are today. So I think physical mobility will be one part of it, but we should also start exploring it's international educators, how we can use the other tools that we've now got and will soon have. And I think that's something we should really seriously think about too. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. I, I've, I mean, you and I have talked about this in the past as well, that it's, we're not trying to minimize the, the, you know, the absolute destruction that was the COVID pandemic, but to not have learnt from it and not to to simply go back yep. to the way things were with no sense of well actually yeah we we do this better now and you know and that wasn't that great before and and you know let's try and think about something different and, and harness new new mobility schemes and new access points uh, 
Absolutely. I mean, if, if the goal is opportunity and the goal is learning, then let's find the best way, the best way to, to do that, right? So, yeah, I agree yeah. with you. And, and, uh, I mean, it's been, it's been very interesting because, you know, a lot of my colleagues immediately came back here. It's like, we want to get all the students back full-time, face-to-face. Now, as I said, I'm in the tourism area. I went to visit uh, TUI. TUI is a very large um, uh, tour operator here in Europe, about 50,000 employees. Uh, they have a subsidiary company based here in the Netherlands. I went to visit the CEO. And again, remember that, you know, we want our students to be on campus all the time, all teaching back face-to-face. Yep. Okay. Why? Well, because this will get them ready for the real world. Oh, okay. So I go to visit TUI. I walked in there, beautiful lobby, five-story building in The Hague. Um, he's got model airplanes. He's got two coffee shops in his lobby, the whole, you know. And I looked around him and I said, um, I said uh, beautiful building, lovely. I said, but one thing I'm missing here. He said, oh, what's that? I said, well, you don't actually seem to have anyone working here. And he said, well, no, funny old thing, that." He said, um, I'm trying. I want to underline the word trying here. I'm trying to get my staff to come back two days a week. <laughs> and I've got my academic colleagues telling me, all oh, the students all have to be in the classroom because that's getting them ready for the real world. Yeah. I'm going, well, the real world is actually... The- you know, not even going in two days a week. So I'm not sure how real that bit of the world is. So, you know, I think there's a balance. There's, there's a lot of conversations happening with different companies. In January this year, you know, Starbucks went out and said it's trying to get its employees back three days a week. Disney was trying four days a week. Um, you know, we, we've still got to work out what that balance is going to be for different roles and for different organisations. But they seem to have sort of a, a, a adapted to it. And, you know, Tui Tanamini said, look, a lot of my IT guys, they, they will work where they will work. If it's a tourism company one day, it could be, you know, it could be a library, it could be an IT company the next day. So he said they have choices. And, you know, no, not every role, don't get me wrong, in tourism, you know, a lot of our roles are very much physically, you've got to be there to, mm. to give the experience, whatever it might be. But again, it's, it's rethinking, again, where our education fits into what will be jobs of the future and, and how our society is going to run. And, you know, commuting for many people in and out of big cities on a train for 45 minutes each way or sitting in a car wasn't a great experience either. So, you know, I think, you know, a lot of other people seem to have learned from it and reflect on it much better than educators have. That's my point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, neither, neither of us are in the same place at the moment and we're, we're uh, having no. a perfectly, uh, perfectly easy conversation with the benefit of technology. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, and obviously we, we, we're not... It, it's funny, I mean, this, this issue about you know, students must be here. I mean, I think some of that's a trust issue. Some of it's about a, a I mean, in certain countries, it's a regulatory issue, right? You know, the, the way in which education is, is monitored and, and controlled. And sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a traditional view of, of, of learning. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, I keep coming back to the fact that face-to-face learning is not perfect, right? Uh, online learning is not perfect either, but you know, the old way was not foolproof and the old way was not, you know, without its need for, for, for change. And so, if we can, I mean, it comes back to, you know, just to bring you back to the conversation we were having about international students, we, we need to be clearer about what it is we're trying to do. And we need to, we need to count things properly. We need to think about what we're doing and how we're doing it for the best benefit of the students, right? And that's, that's clearly not always the yep. case, even in <laughs> an industry that's primary goal is the development and support of the student population. So yep. there you go. Yeah. Good. All right, cool. Well, um, 
Uh, I w- thank you very much for, for your time and your reflections um, and uh, for learning a little bit more about the, the Dutch um, situation. I've obviously been reading quite a bit of it, a lot of it written by you. Um, you know, whatever your protestations about your level of expertise may be, we'll, we'll put a bunch of those links up in the, in the podcast because there's some, there's some really interesting, um, uh, as you say, they are reflective pieces, right? They are, they're not billed as expert pieces, they are billed yeah. as, as reflective pieces. But I mean, no, no. I think that, that in terms of the information sharing and, and just sort of having a, a clear understanding of what's happening in, in places that are relatively similar in some context, right? And, and you know, it's, it's good to know as much as we can. So I appreciate, appreciate both uh, the insight and, the, and your time uh, today. And, and um, thank, you, thank you very much. Anytime, Chris. Great to be able to catch up with you again. Thanks. <laughs>